through some, some very clear things in regards to um, what life should look like. And, and I'm not one necessarily for New Year's resolutions, um, in part because I don't necessarily want myself lumped in with the herd of people that will go to the gym for the month of January and then never step, in month, or never step into the gym again until the next month of January. Um, so if that's a resolution, I don't want any part of that. Um, because I'd, I'd much rather uh, be able to take an evaluation of life and, and sit down and go, you know what, there's some things that need to be true for me. There's some things that maybe I need to not do anymore. And, and so let's not resolve to do those. Let, let's commit to do those. And I fully realize that is just a semantical argument, um, but it's one that I find myself in. So uh, this isn't necessarily a New Year's resolution sermon, but it is one for us to think about. It's the first day of the year. And there should be some things that we're thinking about as we head in to 2017 and as this year really ramps up and kicks in to full gear. Colossians 3 is going to walk us through some specific things that as believers should be true of us and they should be true in increasing measure. And it's not that they're ever going to be perfectly true, but they should be true in increasing measure. And that is a mark of maturity and it's a mark of growth and it's a mark of discipleship and what I would love to do over the the next however many days the Lord gives me is I'd love to look back every 10 years and kind of be able to point to myself and go you really knew nothing back then and if I could do that every 10 years every five years look back at myself and say wow I think that'd be pretty good because that hopefully indicates that every five or ten years there was some significant growth and some significant maturity and some significant steps towards pursuing godliness and holiness and walking with the Lord. And so Colossians 3 is going to give us some things to think about and some things to chew on as we just consider what that looks like. What are the specifics? What might we be able to just kind of pull out and take away and, and, and wrestle with? Now, as we begin in Colossians 3, in the first few verses, are going to summarize some incredibly significant and weighty theological truths. So we're going to step into that briefly this morning. And so the goal is actually to try and take really significant, weighty theological truths, unpack them, understand them, and figure out how that they then go into and make all of the difference when you get into the arguments or the explanation of, well, do this and don't do that, do this, because those are important that we understand the relationship between what the Apostle Paul writes as specific instructions for us to do, and then the very gospel that he grounds all of those instructions in. And so that's what we're going to aim to do here in the next several minutes this morning. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to help us. God in heaven, as we open your word, we want to do so with expectation, expecting that you are going to speak, expecting that you are going to reveal things in us that need to be different, expecting that you are going to remind us of this glorious gospel, which is the very power unto salvation, not, not just as an instant guarantee of an eternity with you, but 
a continual progressing maturity and growth that you wrought in us. So God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be gracious and that you would meet with us. Help us to understand what it is that you have said. God, help us to see how you want us to live in the very means by which you enable us to live that way. God, as we begin this year, I want to commit this year to you. Beginning with this Sunday, we want to commit the next 52 to you as well. God, we want to lay our church and ourselves before you. And I ask that you would glorify yourself in us individually and in us collectively. God, would you help us to look back at 2017 and be amazed at your work in our lives. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things Colossians 3 is going to do for us this morning is it's going to set us up fairly nicely for where we're going next week in the journey through the book of Ecclesiastes that we are going to undertake. So next Sunday, we're going to begin walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's one of my favorite Old Testament books, and and it it found me at a point in time when um, I, I... there was, there was certainly struggles in life and in ministry, and, and I just found myself reading the book of Ecclesiastes for about three months unending. I mean, I, I'd get to chapter 12, and I'd, I'd go back to chapter 1, and it ended up being about once every two weeks I'd restart the book. And if you just take a cursory glance at the book, it, it looks and feels and reads a little depressing. I mean, you just begin in the first few verses, and Solomon's just like, everything's meaningless. This is vanity. Just forget about it, and you kind of can be left scratching your head going, okay, thanks for the pick-me-up, man. Uh, Glad for the words of wisdom. Uh, But as we dig and dive a little deeper, there's some significance and profound truths that he's going to hit upon. And and what that book will do is it really takes aim at, at basically every aspect of life. And it does rightly conclude that it's all meaningless if that's where you seek to find meaning. But if you seek to find meaning in Christ, then those things don't have a meaninglessness to them. They can be put in their proper place. They can be seen and enjoyed as as, as elements and, and avenues of worship before the Lord. And what Paul does in the beginning verses of Colossians 3 is really in summary takes the entire point of the next sermon series we're going to make and writes it in about a sentence. So, 
let's read the sentence and then just know that we're, we're setting ourselves up for where we're going, but you really need to plan to come next week. I don't, you can't take the next 12 weeks off because you're like, I had that sentence. I'm good. It's a great summary. But here's a summary for where we're going, but we're going to unpack it over the next several months together. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 3, If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's really two big ideas that we want to camp on this morning. The first is this, that believers, we have a new self. If you are a note taker and you're looking to take notes, that would be the first big major category that we are going to think through things in. Believers, we have a new self. There is a new self. Now I'm taking the word self from verses 9 and 10. So you'll get there, we'll get there, and we'll see where the, the word self comes in because it doesn't show up in verses 1 to 4, but I'm, I'm taking that from verses 9 and 10. But we have a new self. So let's look again what Paul says in verses 1 to 4 and consider that in regards to this new self. If then you have been raised with Christ, that word raised literally means co-raised. What Paul is saying there is that there has been a co-resurrection that has taken place. And so as we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what happens at that moment is that the Lord's resurrection is now considered to be our resurrection. There is a co-resurrection that has taken place. There is a historical moment in time where Christ rose from the grave on the third day, and as we place our faith in trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we are now considered to be resurrected. We have been raised co-raised. So it means that there's a new self. Now, what Paul's going to get to in verse 3, and we'll get there as well, is that for there to be a resurrection, there must first be a death. And you can see that pattern in the life of Christ as well. We have been co-raised. And so look at the very first command that Paul gives us in verse 1 here. Seek the things that are Above, But look at the very logic and argument that he puts down as the basis of this command. If then you have been co-raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. See, there's things that we're to put our minds on. There's things that we are to seek. And there's things that we're to not seek. And in summary fashion here, the Apostle Paul says, the things that you are to seek are the things that are above. Because you've been co-raised 
with Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice here that in, in regards to this new self that we have and then the command for us to actually do something and that something is to seek, we're to seek on the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So believers, if we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there should be a pursuit true in our lives. There should be a seeking that is evident in our lives, and it's the things that are above. Well, why the things that are above? Well, Paul's going to answer that next, because it's where Christ is seated. It's where he is, and he is seated at the right hand of God. See, the writer of Hebrews tells us that after Jesus did his work of atonement and was resurrected, he ascended and he sat at the right hand of the Father. Now why sitting? Why that? What is he doing as he is seated? Well, he's seated because his work is done. And when we sing the words, Jesus paid it all, All to him I owe. That is a hymn that tries to encompass the very work and totality of Christ's work and accomplishment that there is no more atonement left to be made. There is no further step of redemption that needs to go and be purchased because the work is done. And when he hung on the cross and said, It is finished. It was accomplished. And after he was buried and rose again and ascended, he sat. And his seating indicates that this work is finished, but he not only just sat, he sat in the position of power and authority and honor and majesty because his position of seating is on the right hand of the Father. So you and I, if we have been co-raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above because that's where He is. And He is in this position of power and authority and honor and majesty. You know what one of the most tremendous things to think about? Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 1 and later in chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 1, I believe it is verse 20, Paul emphasizes there that Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then I believe it's in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, and you have been seated with Christ. And in verse 7, Paul goes on to say, so that Christ may make known the riches of his grace. We're talking about some astounding spiritual realities. I told you we were going to have to work through some weighty theological things here in the beginning. That I may be standing here before you, you may be seated there before me, but that is not your spiritual position. Your spiritual position is seating, is sitting next to Christ Jesus who is sitting next to God the Father 
And these are things that have happened instantaneously as you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what causes us to be able to sing the words we just did. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Because you're not just in his hand, you're in the seat next to him. And he's in the seat next to the Father. And he's sitting there until all of his enemies become just a footstool underneath him that will eventually be trampled by him as he leaves that position of power and authority and just comes and exercises it for the full and final time. And you and I are seated next to him. So why do we seek those things? Because that's where he is. Because we want to seek the things of Christ. I mean, it's that that beloved hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And so friends, if a a co-resurrection has been true of us, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, You are seated next to him in the heavenlies. You are called to seek the things that are above. We have been given a new self. Paul reiterates this point in verse 2 and he says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Set your minds on things. Have your focus and your attention be on things that are above because that's where Christ is. Not on the things of this earth. Because they grow strangely dim and they fade and they're not everlasting and they're not fulfilling. I mean, that's, that's the point Solomon's going to make in Ecclesiastes. I tried money didn't satisfy. I tried partying, didn't satisfy. I tried hard work, didn't satisfy. I tried wealth building to give a good inheritance to my kids, didn't satisfy. I tried all of this, it didn't satisfy. Because the things of earth are not going to satisfy. And so we're called to seek the things that are above and to set our minds, to have our focus and attention be on the things that are Above, and it's because we've been given a new self. And he articulates that more specifically in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Just consider how astounding that verse is. Because Paul is talking about a, a spiritual death that has occurred. And again, at the moment that we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, there was a spiritual death that took place. And we are now considered to have died to sin. So it's what leads Paul to be able to say in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but the life I live, I, I live by the power of Christ. And that's what gives us now the ability to understand that that life in Christ is seen as a resurrection life that has taken place because of His work. 
because there's been a spiritual death. And so as Christ died on the cross, he purchased redemption for us. And as we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that is, it becomes now applied to our, our cosmic account. And so all of the righteous things that Jesus Christ did and all of his perfect obedience gets credited to my account and all of the junk that I do and did gets placed on his account and he paid the penalty for it but as I place my faith and trust in him there's a spiritual death that occurs and there's a resurrection to new life that happens and this is what baptism pictures that's why you go under the water and you come back up death to sin alive in Christ to the newness of life We've been given a new self. This theologically, and I understand I'm using theological language here, but this is what Jesus is, is telling Nicodemus in John 3. He says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait a minute, I'm a grown man. How, how is that going to work physiologically? He goes, no, 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 not, not getting back in your mama's belly. You must be born again. And this death to sin and resurrection with Christ is the theological language that can most helpfully be summarized by the words born again. There's newness because we have a new self. And so you have died. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've died to sin. Sin's decisive hold on your life has been severed because you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He has paid the debt that you owed. He has credited all of his righteousness to you. And that, that hold that sin has on your life has been decisively severed. And you and I have been raised to the newness of life. And notice then what Paul says at the second part of verse 3. And our life and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We have a new self. And this new self will one day appear with Christ in glory. We have a new nature. We're no longer sinners by nature. We're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer sons of disobedience. We're no longer enemies of God because we've been born again. And so how and why do we then still struggle? It's a tremendous question. I'm glad you asked it. We still struggle because there is a future redemption that we are awaiting. And that our bodies are awaiting its redemption. Paul would very clearly articulate this in Romans 8, that creation is groaning as it's waiting for all of the 
mortal bodies to be fully redeemed. And so that then begins to give explanation for why there are commands for us to not do certain things and to do other things. It's because we're still struggling and wrestling with what the New Testament would use the word flesh to describe. That, that the sin nature that I once had was so pervasive and it was so complete and so total that, that what is now taking place is an unwiring and a rewiring of, of patterns of thinking and impulses and physical desires and, and, and those things are, are, are being renewed but there's still a struggle because our bodies have yet not been or have not yet been redeemed. That's why there's still death because the body is still mortal. But there's a promise of immortality and eternity with the Lord because when Christ who is our life appears you will also appear with him. And so what Paul does here, one pastor helpfully summarized, he, he, he takes our present placement with Christ. And he uses that as a motivation for our ongoing progress in Christ-likeness. And that's what's taking place in these beginning verses of Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 4 is the articulation of our present placement with Christ. We have died to sin. We have been raised to the newness of life. We have been seated next to Him because He is now at the right hand of the Father. There is a placement that is sure and there is a guarantee that when He comes, ourselves will be with Him. And the Apostle Paul uses that as motivation for you and I to make different choices. To make and to think different thoughts. And so the second really big idea, and we're not going to spend a ton of time walking through the specifics of every one of these words. A whole lot of them are just really self-explanatory. But the second big idea for us this morning is that we are called to wear new clothes. And I'm going to show you where we get that specifically as well. And so in verse 5, the Apostle Paul begins to say, put to death what is earthly in you. Now that's strong language. Put to death what is earthly in you. Don't mess around with it. Don't play with it. You don't coddle it. You don't try to keep it tucked away and you put it to death. And, I, and I've used this illustration before and I just think it's appropriate again that, that we can be inclined to oftentimes think of sin as it is like, a, a, like my 14 pound little kitty cat. And I don't know what got into my cat the last couple of days. It might have been my mom. Cat doesn't like my mom. Cat's just been running around. He's been like biting people and Last night, like, because I had to shoo the cat off the table, and it's like, man, it, we can think of sin like that. If it kind of bugs us, you know, and just toss the cat away, they always land on their feet. You know, if the cat's not doing something I like, and just pick the cat up, 
Take it away. But the reality is, is that sin's not like the 14-pound cat I got in my house. It's like the ferocious lion, the 900-pound lion that could, with one swipe of his paw, end my life. And we get ourselves all caught up and all goofed up when we consider sin to be the 14-pound kitty cat and ignore the fact that it's, no, it's actually the ferocious 900-pound lion. And the scriptures understand this. And the language of then death is used to describe what you and I are to do with what is earthly in us. And so Paul begins to list things. Sexual immorality, put it to death. Impurity, put it to death. Passion, put it to death. Evil desire and covetousness, put it to death. That's idolatry. And in verse 6 he tells us, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And we just need to pause there for a minute and just understand that, that there will be a day when God's wrath will be poured out and those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will feel and suffer under the full accounting of that wrath. It's part of what should motivate us to witness the willingness to to love somebody enough to have a difficult uncomfortable conversation because God's wrath is coming he continues in verse 7 in these you too once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away so put to death and put away anger put to death and put away wrath Put to death and put away malice. Put to death and put away slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see there in verses 9 and 10, there we get the word self. And there's than an articulation of what Paul has begun to say in the beginning verses of Colossians 3 where we summarize those beginning verses by saying we have a new self. And so he tells us that we're to put to death things that are characteristic of the old self because we've put off the old self. But the words he uses to put off and to put on are very specific verbs that are used to describe the process of taking off garments and putting on garments. And so the the word put in verse 9, where we have put off the old self, is defined as taking off something or stripping something that is old and obsolete and inferior. And then in verse 10, Paul says... And you've put on the new self. And the word put there means to just literally put on clothes. The word new meaning recent and superior. So he uses these two words that we translate as put, but they're two different words, in in a really helpful way for us to illustrate them, to understand them. 
And, and what he's saying is you, you don't wear that jersey anymore. You're on a new team. And I thought about putting like my gray shirt underneath this one and like taking this one off, but I want to avoid the headline that says Pastor Strips during New Year's Day sermon. So we're just going to pretend that, you know, that, that took, no, we're not going to pretend that took place. We're just going to pretend there was a new shirt put on in a very appropriate way. How about that? Uh, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you, you, think about the life lived for Christ as one where you walk to your closet and you make the choice of what shirt you're going to wear, what jersey you put on today. And he's saying, look, you already took off the old jersey. You've put on the new jersey, so just keep wearing the new jersey. Don't put the old one on anymore. That one's, that one's stained, that one's dirty, it's obsolete, it's inferior on account of that jersey, on that team, the wrath of God's coming. You've been given a new jersey. Put that one on. Leave it on. And when the old jersey tries to creep up and it tries to get itself kind of wrapped around your arms and, and it start to put itself back on you, you know, you put that jersey to death, you cut it off again. I don't follow baseball closely, but some of my favorite moments during a baseball season is when you get to really close to the trade deadline and you hear the story about uh, a particular player who, was, who showed up at the ballpark and it, and it was usually like at a visiting ballpark and he gets there and he finds out he's been traded as he arrives at the ballpark. But what makes those types of stories and the ones that I find just really fascinating, even more fascinating, is he was traded to the team that, the, that his old team was going to play that day. And so he gets his glove and he gets his bag, which is probably with, uh, with the, all, his old team's insignia. So I, I, I've never seen the behind-the-scenes footage, but I can imagine him carrying his bats and his glove and his cleats and, and just walking down the hallway to the visitor's locker room. But then when he gets there, there's a brand new jersey waiting. It's got his name on it. He's probably got a new number. That's what Paul chooses to illustrate these significant theological truths with. That the old jersey's just been put off. It's obsolete. It's inferior. It's old. There's been a new one put on. And he continues, and this new one is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That word renewed is written as a present passive. So what does that mean? That sounds really technical. It means present, it's happening now. And it means passive, it's happening to you. You're not the one responsible for the action. So what does that mean? It means as we come to God's Word, God's Word actively renews us. God, through His Word, actively renews us. And as we learn the knowledge, we become more and more like Jesus. And Paul says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, 
Scythian, slave, free, Christ is all and in all. What, what does he mean there? He means the gospel is available for all men, all women. That there is no external difference between different types of people that causes them to be unable to be loved by Christ. Which in turn should mean that there is no external difference between men that should cause us to be unwilling to love and share Christ. Because it doesn't matter the color of the skin, it doesn't matter the language spoken, it doesn't matter the geographic location that somebody has lived in or living in. Christ came for all. And so then we're to put on verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we're to put on compassionate hearts. We're to put on kindness. This is the new jersey that we're wearing. It's a compassionate jersey. It's a kind jersey. It's a humble jersey. It's a meek jersey. It's a patient jersey. It's a jersey that bears with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, it's a jersey. We're a part of a team that forgives each other as the Lord has forgiven so you must also forgive there is no wiggle room in that word as Paul chooses a word there to translate as as that means just as and what that means is that if somebody has offended you you are called to forgive them to the degree and measure that you have been forgiven by the Lord now, notice where the focus and attention then gets placed. It gets placed on you thinking through and working through the Lord the measure of forgiveness that you have received and then extending that forgiveness to others. Paul does not say, I want you to think about how much that person needs to be forgiven, how terrible that person is, and how, how, how just much they've done wrong and how great God's grace is in their lives and then you just go and you do the same. Now he says, I want you to think about how, how much you've been forgiven. And how great God's grace has been in your life. And I want you to extend that same degree of forgiveness to them. See, we're to wear new clothes. There's a new jersey. The old jersey's been taken off. The new jersey's been put on and it's being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. We, we grow in understanding who Christ is and we grow and are transformed into more and more those who look like Him. And so as we consider the significant, profound things that are true of us spiritually, we have died to sin. We have been raised to the newness of life. We have been seated next to Christ in the heavenlies. We have been given a secure position. We have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're now called to, to go and do some things. To go and act a certain way and, and, and put to death certain behaviors that belittle the name of Christ. and Do not glorify the Lord. 
So let me just ask you, what, what if 2017 was a year of radical personal obedience in pursuit of godliness for you? What, what if, it, and the word radical is going to show up in every one of these, because what if that's what characterized your life? And maybe people in your church, maybe people in your community, maybe those around you would stand back throughout the year of 2017 and go, they look like they've lost their minds because of how radically they are pursuing Jesus. What if your year looked like that? What if 2017 was a year of radical prayers? Prayers like Elijah prayed. Bold prayers that ask God to do the miraculous. Prayers that take what James wrote, that the prayer of a righteous man is effective as it is working. That those who radically pursue personal obedience and godliness, that there is a power and effectiveness in their radical prayers as they come before the Lord. What if your 2017 was a year of radical witness? What if you just stopped caring what that person's going to think of you and you just told them, man, you need Christ. And that one's on me just as much as I want it to be on you because I need to have those conversations. What if 2017 was a year of radical worship, both together and individually? What if it was a year of radical serving? What if you didn't sit on the sidelines anymore? But you found a place to use the gifts and skills that the, God, that the Lord has given you and you put them to work in his body and you found people to love and serve in our community. What if that's what our year looked like? What would we think about on December 31st, when we gather for the last time in 2017 and reflect on a year. It's probably a year well lived. It's probably a year that despite whatever trials or difficulties, is a year that we can look back on and go, we pursued the Lord we aimed to glorify him. And that's what our focus was. Because of everything that Christ has done, let's be those people. Let's do those things. Let's pray. God, we want to give you our year. We want to give you the relationships that, that need mending. Lord, the forgiveness that needs to be extended, the, the conversations that we need to have with individuals for, for, the, for the sake of, of communicating that, that they need you. Lord, we want to give you those things. And we want to lay before you this coming year. 
And God, we pray that you would be glorified. And that as you have made us new, that we would walk in the newness of life. And so, Lord, where we may be poor and powerless, we want to consistently and repeatedly give all glory to you. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.